Welcome to the Digital Solicitor Podcast with me, Christina Grasco. The subject under discussion today is private client practice and whether it is fit for purpose in today's changed trading environment. And for clarity by private clients, I mean the services lawyers offer to clients for lifetime planning around assets, tax and inheritance. It crosses into wills, trusts and probate and by definition requires collaboration amongst lawyers as well as their clients. And this is a growth area. We're living longer, we can't bear the thought of 40% of anything going to HMRC when we would rather it go to our loved ones. And in the world of practice development, especially tech and software, it has found itself left behind in recent years and I want to look at why and how this can be reversed. So joining me in the conversation today is Craig Matthews, who is the Director of Lifetime Planning at LEAP. And perhaps you. you could start by giving us a little bit of background on your experience within the legal sector and in private client work. Yes, certainly. My experience started 20 plus years ago, uh, working in a law firm and doing the vocational ILEX course. Uh, I then got tempted by the dark side and moved into legal IT. And that's where I spent the vast majority of my professional career, most likely as the CEO of a different practice management solution before having the great opportunity to join LEAP. I mentioned that private client work has been left behind in so many ways, both within law firms and the tech solutions available to those practitioners. Why is that? Great question. I think there's a number of factors that are at play here. First and foremost, some of these documents still must be wet signed. So there has to be a reliance on meeting clients face to face. There's also the fact that the majority of clients seeking these services were until recently those that didn't have a great digital footprint. So the services client uh, services that law firms gave tended to be more aligned with face to face meetings and documents in post. How has that changed? I think because I think there has been a seismic change, hasn't there? I think two things have happened here and not just one. We say that the profession's got left behind, but also I think clients have marched into the future because of the last couple of years, haven't they? That's right. So COVID uh, is the big game changer here. We had to all adapt to the way in which we operated and wills and probate departments were, of course, part of that. The use of technologies like Zoom and Teams became standard and everyone started to adapt that. We're also at a generational tipping point here where the vast majority of people now seeking those services, 45 plus, 50-ish, will have a digital footprint. They will be used to using digital services. So all of a sudden we'll see a swathe of people coming to these services not being content with the old-fashioned methods of face-to-face meetings and everything in paper. It's time the tax industry stood up and realised this and had to start making inroads to enable private client practitioners to provide modern services for their clients. So let's have a look at both aspects, I think, of this as, as we go into this conversation. Firstly, let's concentrate on the internal issues. We know from experience that even when firms have some of the best tech tools available, they don't always know it, do they? Yeah, and I think this is maybe where legal software providers need to do more. If we take PropTech, for uh, example, an industry that has had millions of pounds invested into it, most legal software suppliers out there will have good facilities within their property offering. They're very happy to talk about these and very happy to demonstrate about these because they feel confident and comfortable in the way they work. Now, not so many providers have really great and equally as good offerings for lifestyle planning software services. Some of them do, but the sales staff aren't quite as confident because they are more complicated. Because of that, they aren't conveyed to the clients in the same sort of way and as such aren't implemented in the same kind of way. What happens in the end of the time will be that the 
individual private client practitioners will carry on using the same processes, the same methods they always have done, perhaps just using the case management system as a document repository rather than using it as a proper case management software supplier. So what you're saying is that firms have invested, they've put a case management system in, it's probably being better utilised by other teams within the firm. Is it a resistance to in-house systems in the first place? Is it a resistance from the fee earners in private client who think that the software doesn't really cater for them? It could well be. We have to face the fact that the change is difficult regardless of what we're doing and where we are. But we also have to face the fact that we have to embrace change. And it's not like technology is about to go away anytime soon. And any failure to embrace that change is likely to result in a a degradation of services over a period of time. Now, for private client work, really, since it began in in the Old World Act of 1837, the methods of actually writing those documents haven't changed a great deal. Sure, we use computers, not uh, quill and parchment anymore, but the process of obtaining the instructions, understanding a client's assets, drafting, reviewing, signing, and then keeping safe haven't changed a great deal. If we roll back 20 years ago to how PropTech was, again, that was a very paper-heavy process. What changed was really the likes of Rightmove Zoopla and my home move coming into the market. The client's journey started as a digital journey, and then there was an expectation that their journey will continue to be digital. And as they hit the lawyer, so they found that process moved away from digital until recently when we can do everything online. Now, my belief is that those clients who have experienced that entirely digital journey and even gone as far as registering their property with the land registry online will be the kind of clients who very soon will be looking at wills and LPAs. And when faced with the same solicitor providing paper where digital was before, uh, I think they're going to have a real shock. They will expect the services to be digital. They will be using Facebook. They will be using other social media platforms. They will be going online to get insurance quotes. I can't imagine they'll be happy if their insurance broker started sending them stuff in the paper and then expected them to spend time going out to meet face-to-face with other insurance brokers to try and get the very best deal. There will be this change in culture. There will be a change in expectation. And what the private client practitioners need is the software and the services around that to support them in delivering and meeting the expectation of those clients. I mean, you mentioned a generational thing before. Is there an assumption still amongst private client teams that because they seem to be dealing primarily perhaps with an older age group, that these current private clients don't need or care about tech solutions. Because I think, whilst I think there's a generational thing, I think also actually that age group, the older age group, got used to FaceTime and working digitally during the pandemic as well. So the assumption may not even apply in that group anymore. You're absolutely right. And I wonder how many law firms have actually asked their clients what they would like and actually asked them how they feel using face-to-face videos instead of meeting directly, how they feel about filling in questionnaires online rather than doing it in front of them over a three or four hour long meeting. There's most certainly a change in expectation from the the older population in that they are prepared to use uh, digital technology. Uh, When my uh, uh, my, my, my great aunt joined us at the age of 85 for a Zoom quiz. It sort of really sort of dawned on me that all of a sudden there is this accept- expectation and acceptance of this technology and how it enables us to, to, to work with one another and how to speak with another a lot more freely. I also think the big change that we're coming is this is the first time in history that the generation who will seek these services will be tech savvy. The 60-year-olds, the 70-year-olds, the 80-year-olds of today will not have a 
particularly large digital footprint. Sure, some of them will, but it will be the minority. This next generation, the 50, the 40-year-olds of today, will have that digital footprint. It's the first time in history where those people will have grown up and will have used technology the vast majority of their adult life. So I do expect this shift. Why hasn't happened before? Well, because technology wasn't there back when the 70-year-olds of today were 20. It was when the 50-year-olds of today were 20, most certainly is when the 40-year-olds of today were 20. And that, I think, is going to be a key key game changer and where technology must stand up and support the solicitors with how they deliver their services. And it's creeping up fast, isn't it? Because we now do online for everything and we've got things coming which feel left field, like cryptocurrencies, which actually aren't at all. And they're going to challenge our accepted procedures for source of fund searches, for example, as will any purely online method of transaction. And that's here now, isn't it? We can't carry on ignoring those. Yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. Um, I think that the makeup of a person's digital assets, the makeup of someone's family will only get more and more complicated as time goes on. So you look back to the old, uh, you know, intestacy laws, the assumption is that everything will be left to the spouse and then through family lineage. But we know through the stats from the likes of STEP and other large organisations, that the majority of people getting married is, is decreasing. We live in cohabiting relationships and will or will not have a cohabiting agreement. We are part of blended families where multiple families are coming together. Our families cross jurisdiction, they cross the ethnicity, they cross race. We are a worldwide club culture. And really the, the, the sporting laws we have don't allow for that. So that's just how a will has to be drafted in order to ensure that the legacy is, is protected accordingly. When you then throw in you know, even, even the sort of more simple uh, digital assets like challenger banks offering entirely online platforms, there is no paper legacy for a lot of these accounts. They are simply online. When you then couple that with NFTs, the metaverse, cryptocurrency, you know, how will those digital assets be left? We've seen the step have now released a, uh, a memories campaign aimed to encourage us all to ensure that our legacy settings are turned on. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's so much more that has to be done. I believe that it will be solicitors and legal practitioners who are asked those questions. Well, how do I securely leave a Bitcoin to my, uh, to my next of kin? You know, what's the best, what's the most secure method of, of passing this hugely secure, hugely valuable asset? I think that if you couple that with the change of expectations of clients in the last couple of years, I think that a world has come into being very quickly that maybe private client lawyers are struggling to recognise. Are they struggling to operate in? Or do you think it is actually they're beginning to understand that they're part of it as well? I think it's, it's, it's probably, again, multifaceted. The truth is that the, the crypto revolution has taken most of us by surprise. And I think you know, even the government may feel that way on the basis they, they really don't understand at the moment how tax liability will be applied and, and how CTG gains will be appropriately distributed and, 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 and recovered. So there's definitely a lot of this going on in this space at the moment that, that has caught a lot of people out. It's also, of course, a hugely volatile market. So is it going to stay around? Is it, how is it going to operate? And I think the truth is that it's absolutely going to carry on as is. This is all new. It's all brand new and it's all changing and invariably will continue to evolve. The truth is that with private practitioners, the majority of people they would be seeing last year, the year before, five, 10 years ago, wouldn't have that kind of asset type. The people they'll be seeing this year, next year, five years time, 10 years time, 
we'll have this new type of asset and we'll need advice and we'll need assistance in how to manage and how to look after it. So I think now's the time we need to stand up, need to understand the, the likely makeup of these uh, assets. You know, what happens if we do have property overseas? You know, there's obviously been lots published around trust with beneficiaries in Russia and, and how that money can or cannot be distributed. You know, this change in economy, this change in world we live in will have massive impact on how private practitioners operate. So the big question sitting right alongside us is how do law firms put together a strategy for this work and how do they do it on a repeat basis that benefits both clients and profits the firm? Because I think when there's time of change, we have to think as lawyers that we've got to keep talking to our clients, haven't we? We can't just do it for 10 years and leave it in aspect. Yeah, absolutely. I've spoken with a number of law firms about this. Some of them do provide a, a rounded service where they do keep in touch with their clients, whereas others Providers tend to produce the will and then kind of hope along the line they may receive that probate work or perhaps a more lucrative side of this. I think there's a, a definitely need for a lifetime planning partner. So the law firm to actually work alongside the client at the earliest possible juncture in their life and then throughout their lifetime, understanding their estate as it evolves and ensuring they are well protected. I also think that over time, their advice may also bring in accountants and IFAs and there will be a collaborative effort to ensure their clients get the very best service, ensuring their wealth is, is you know, assisted in growing, is well protected, that you know, tax is paid appropriately, and that it is managed. The IHT threshold at 625, you know, that, that is not due for review now until 2026. It was set in 2009. A lot more properties will fall into that category. And all of a sudden, as you said at the outset, a 40% tax threshold you know, it is going to be something that people have to be very much awake to and understand how they can you know, protect their assets and, and how to manage that best. I've also seen a massive increase in equity being released, something that you know, 10 or 15 years ago perhaps was the, the wrong thing to do. And of course, now still has risks and must be considered. But you know, people are living longer. There is lots of equity in property. Yeah, people are going to enjoy that and they're going to they're going to do the right thing. They need advice around that and support to make the right decisions. So let's go back to systems. I want to ask you about some practical things that firms can be working on now to raise their game, starting with onboarding clients who are new to us or returning after a long break. Uh, yeah, a great question. So from what I've seen with clients I've spoken to, people revert to the old fashioned method of onboarding private clients. They look towards having clients bring in copies of passports or driving license. And I said to them, well, why not use the same technology we deploy in other departments? Why not use a technology first solution. So verification of individuals, which we can do online with a smartphone or tablet, is by far the most secure and best way of doing this. I accept that not all clients would want it, but I think would be surprised by just how many clients would like it if given the option. Another area along the onboarding route is that uh, Rule 15 letter, our, our terms and conditions of business. Why don't we sign this for e-signature at the same time and give our clients the ability to digitally sign these documents rather than send out the pack in the post and wait for it to be returned? That makes sense. Alongside this, you're a great advocate of upfront information generally, aren't you? I am. And I think upfront information is the way forward for almost all areas of law. If we think at a property transaction, there's no way we would be sitting with a client and going through our property information pack every time we have one come across. We send to our client upfront, we ask them to complete it, they return it to us. And of course, if we have questions, we then go back to them. So why not do the same thing with a wills questionnaire? And I'm not suggesting that a client from that can then draft their own questionnaire, but they can most certainly give us names and addresses of beneficiaries and executives. They may even start thinking ahead of time about specific gifts and may even be able to give a um, further guidance and further considerations to how they want to leave 
some of their possessions and make sure their legacy is exactly how they want it to be. I think one of the things that I would ask, some lawyers are quite nervous about doing that, aren't they? They're quite nervous about asking clients to think about those things, particularly if they have slightly more complex wishes. They feel that should actually be part of the initial conversation. Do you think that in that situation, or indeed in any areas where you might be dealing with somebody who is quite elderly and who may not, certainly has competence to make a will, but may not necessarily be able to do that, do you change your view in that situation? I don't think I'd change my view entirely. You're absolutely right, though. There is a big distinction between doing the will questionnaire and the will meeting versus filling other, other paperwork. And that is that part of that uh, interview process, the lawyer will be assessing the client's cognitive ability to ensure they are in a position they can make that will. And therefore, the questions will be asked uh, of a certain nature that enable them to make that decision. However, just because you have the information in print doesn't mean you then can't verify it and just confirm that this is the name of your executor. These are the names of your beneficiaries. This is where they live. You are simply reinforcing information they have given you and therefore can be checking that that is correct. So I think there is big advantages in doing it that way as well in any situation. I should also say, of course, that they don't have to fill it in. So just because they're not going to fill in the questionnaire or don't have the ability to fill in the questionnaire doesn't mean you shouldn't then proceed exactly how, as you have done at the moment. The traditional methods of doing this can carry on working alongside the digital method. I just think we must be open to those digital methods and apply them where appropriate. One of the areas where I think that is very true, and I think one of the things that changed for better in our COVID world was the use of technology for virtual meetings. I know that a lot of clients actually want this to stay as part of their normal way of dealing with their solicitor. They don't want to have to turn up at the office. And I think that particularly applies actually. Surprisingly, with some of our older clients, I remember talking to a couple of probate lawyers during COVID and they were actually astonished at the speed with which their older clients adopted Zoom. Because of course they not really realised that they'd been taught it by their families to keep up communication and once they discovered it it was a riot they loved it so again i think as part of that technological assistance you're very much in favor of virtual meetings aren't you i I am and you're right we started using teams and zooms primarily out of necessity we didn't have any other options so we went down the digital route and it's been great that we've been able to get back out into the world and see people and greet people and meet them. And I've been a a big advocate going out and meeting, greeting clients, and I've found that to be a really rewarding process. However, just because I can doesn't mean I've stopped using Zoom and Teams altogether. I still use them a great deal more than I did pre-COVID. I use them because they are really efficient. I use them because they're really effective and often are are more convenient for the clients I'm meeting with. So I will carry on using that technology. Just this past weekend, it was my boy's birthday and uh, he was sent some gifts by a great aunt who's all of 85 years of age. Well, we FaceTimed her so she could watch him opening those uh, gifts rather than travel the way across from Cambridge. That's how the elderly population embraced technology. So you know, let's ensure the services we provide enable them to continue to use it. And I think we'll find, you know, as, as you did with the people you spoke to, they like using that technology like they like that interaction um so just because we can now meet face to face doesn't mean we should turn our back on on those great tools that are available to us can i tie two things together as well here because it may not be immediately obvious to people listening the onboarding and the virtual meetings they're not mutually exclusive are they you can do a lot of the onboarding process virtually absolutely and you know there were new legislation or legislation questioned over what you can and cannot do uh, I think everyone's pretty clear on, on on the way those things can be operated. 
There's certainly some consideration as to whether or not people can apply undue influence from the other side of a Skype camera. But again, you know, if you look through the documentation around it, then the chances of that are really not, not a great deal more serious than the um, chance of that happening in any other circumstance anyway. So I think you know, we have to embrace technology. We have to accept there are risks in using any type of technology, as there are indeed with very many traditional processes. And we have to make sure we can mitigate those risks accordingly. As part of that technology, and at a more fundamental level, is the electronic file, isn't it? Yeah, and this is true across the board. Electronic files are so important. They became, again, a necessity during COVID because we couldn't just pop to the office and grab that uh, paper file. Um, but we should all continue to use them. And if possible, they should now be surpassed in our requirement for that paper file. Certainly in lifetime planning, there are certain documents that you have to have the original. So there's your LPAs and there's your wills. And of course, you can't just go digitally with those. But nothing stops you taking a copy of those, doing a scan, uploading that onto your digital file. So if you ever are required to access it, rather than have to write through a filing cabinet or call something back from archive, why not go to a copy of the original that's sat in your digital file? And that, of course, makes it easier to share stuff, doesn't it, digitally, which is a, a cornerstone, I think, of adopting technology to raise your game. Yeah, the, the, the very next step then is how we then share those documents with our clients. We can share draft documents, we can let them review it prior to sending that original ready for signature. Sharing documents via a secure portal is becoming the standard way, and it's how insurance companies operate, it's how a lot of IFAs operate, it's how a lot of accountants operate. So again, it's technology that we, as the general public, are very, very familiar with. Email, by its very nature, is often sent unencrypted. The majority of email is sent unencrypted, therefore it's not safe. It is a, a postcard rather than a letter in an envelope. Some people will use encrypted mail services, which is one way, but often that technology is probably more problematic for the end users to understand and to open, whereas they are familiar with portals. And I do believe that that is the way we should be sharing secure documents with clients going forward. Part of that sharing is good for the client as well. For many years, solicitors faced the accusation that they weren't being open enough with clients. Clients couldn't get enough information out of them. And it also made it harder. I mean, we're kind of back to the, you know, the expectation that stuff was sent in the post. The client read it, then came into the office and you went through it. And it doesn't need to be like that, particularly with so many of us working and trying to, to juggle things. Sharing enables clients to see a lot more, be more informed, make more informed decisions and actually help you more by giving you answers that they've got time to sit and think about at home haven't they when it's convenient for them to get good answers to respond to the questions that you're asking them about aspects of their lives yeah absolutely a good digital portal should enable you to uh, annotate uh, on the documents that are shared with and ask questions and the kind of thing that we would do in a paper version if we had a a pencil and we made comments in the margin and then we waited to have that discussion well we don't have to. we can actually make those annotations onto the documents and then we can invariably through that same portal we can pose those questions to our solicitor and get clarification what a great way and what a great collaborative way of working with your solicitor rather than as you quite rightly said it comes in a post we make notes we write a letter we return that to the solicitor a few days later they receive it and then reply, it comes back to us and all of a sudden it's 10 or 15 days have passed when actually we could have done it probably the same day through a portal. The other thing, of course, the portal allows us to do is to keep digital copies of stuff as well and share those as well, doesn't it? Yeah, so we can keep digital copies on there and we can share them 
permanently with our clients. So if they ever needed an access to their will or access to their LPA, albeit the electronic copy, the original must be kept separately, as we know, why not have that as a place they go to, to go and view it? So create through from your website. So ensuring that client comes back to your website, you are their portal call to get all of their documents. You click on the client login portal and there you have in front of you the documents. And I just think that's a really convenient way for your client to be able to access their documents rather than invariably what they'll be doing is saving them onto a local drive or saving them onto uh, a cloud and potentially having a folder in their uh, personal mail account called you know, wills or LPAs and them all being stored in there and then them getting automatically archived and then might be visible on um, the iPhone but might not be on their iPad and all these areas of confusion that can arise and can so easily be resolved if the law firms provide a portal and give access to their clients through that portal. One of the things that we're saying quietly, but is a theme in a lot of the conversations that I have, is that there is also scope here for processes to be to involve less paper and be more efficient. I know that makes some lawyers, particularly in the private client sphere, go, ooh, hang on a minute, That's, don't take us too far down that road. <laughs> but the reality of it is that, that there's a very distinct, there's a distinction, isn't there, between the paperwork that has to be kept, as you say, the originals of wills and LPAs and, and, and all of those other original documents, which will be needed in time. And then there's a lot of other stuff that we simply don't need to be keeping paper copies of, do we? Because if they are being securely held within our case management system and within a portal, that's better than it was. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it reminds me of, of February 2020. Now, few of us remember that because, of course, March 2020, COVID came along. But in February 2020, great areas of Herefordshire, Shropshire and Worcestershire were underwater. We had terrible flooding down the River Severn. That forced many businesses to close and they could not operate. Those with a digital file, those with a digital presence were able to continue to operate to some extent because the digital file is not just more convenient, but it is more secure. Digital files cannot get wet, cannot be destroyed by flood or lost in fire. Paper versions can. So this is the other side of it. Yes, it's more convenient, great that we can access from everywhere, but actually has a whole other risk mitigation factor that we simply do not have if we are reliant on paper. So there are very many reasons and we must consider those very carefully. Some documents you must keep, and you quite rightly said, I'm not saying you can't, you don't keep those. They must be kept. There is there is legislation around those. But the other letters, the letters that we can keep digitally and we don't need to keep hold of the hard copies and print something extra at the cost and file something extra at the cost of doing that. And let's keep them digitally. Let's keep them in a secure case management system. And let's reap the rewards of doing so. Lovely. We're almost at the end of today's podcast. So my final question to you is for anybody who is listening and for whom some, if not all of this resonate, or indeed, if they're sort of interested, but slightly nervous, what's the best thing to do? Contact you direct? That would be great. I'd love to hear from anybody who would like to discuss this further. Um, I can be contacted at craig.matthews at leap.co.uk and I would love to have a conversation with you and see what I can do to assist you head towards this digital journey. Excellent. Thank you for that. Just to repeat that in case you didn't get a chance to write it down, that is craig.matthews at leap.co.uk. And he is happy to talk about any aspect of today's discussion. I know we've covered a lot of ground, but please, if you are interested or even just curious in a slightly worried way, do get in contact. My huge thanks to Craig for being with us today and thank you for listening. Until next time, stay well and feel free to contact us with any issue that you would like to join us on in our podcast series at Digital Solicitor at leap.co.uk. Thank you and take care.